0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor. I'm happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're doing the work we need to do to heal self and world at the same time. In our last contemplation, we asked the question, what is the most important thing for working with the medicines of our world? Whatever medicines we work with, horse medicine, mushroom medicine, cactus medicine, the medicine of leaf and vine, the medicine of music, or anything else. We acknowledged that the wisdom traditions in general agree that we can't be told the most important thing. So we asked, what's the most important thing for finding out the most important thing? And we suggested that a holistic philosophy of life is that most important thing. And then we considered that suggestion in the larger context of the dominant culture, and we considered why a contemporary philosopher like yours truly... In the dominant culture, why would a contemporary philosopher here in this context take a special interest in psychedelics and other medicines? Philosophy or love wisdom had a therapeutic intent in the history of the dominant culture way back. Love wisdom was therapeia or therapy for the soul. The great philosopher Epicurus said, Vain is the word of the philosopher that heals no suffering. So philosophers must concern themselves with the medicines of the world, including the medicine of instruction, and maybe there's been no time in history where that has been more important. We need healing. Socrates and Plato followed that sacred imperative, but philosophy today, love-wisdom today, no longer does, generally speaking. And that's odd in one sense because we could very loosely agree with Whitehead that the history of philosophy in the dominant culture is a series of footnotes to Plato. And maybe we could say that what seems to have happened is everyone got caught up in the footnotes and they missed the main text. And we even, of course, considered the suggestion Plato himself makes if we we're to accept the letters as being his, that anyway, his love wisdom wasn't really in the texts. And we considered Plato and Socrates in relation to psychedelics in particular, of all medicines, and, and keep in mind that Plato compared his philosophy to a pharmacon, it was medicine. But we looked in particular at psychedelics because Plato and Socrates seem to have lived in a culture with extensive psychedelic use. Maybe we could think about why that might have been connected to the birth of what we in the dominant culture see in our lineage as the birth of democracy. Not that it never appeared anywhere else. It did. It was here on Turtle Island before the dominant culture arrived, before conquest consciousness arrived here. But maybe there's a connection. But whatever was going on back there in ancient Greece, Plato and Socrates found that psychedelic usage was incapable of keeping the culture sane. It was incapable on its own of helping people heal and helping them become truly wise, loving, and liberated. The Renaissance period marked an attempt for the dominant culture to become reborn, but it didn't work out. And now we find ourselves facing the very same challenges Plato and Socrates tried to help us face. Can we listen to them now so that we might have a planetary renaissance? On a planetary scale it would be a rebirth in sacredness together with a re-indigenizing of the human population. For many in the dominant culture in particular it would mean a rebirth of philosophy as a way of life. And that's the key. We want to ask how philosophy as a way of life, a holistic philosophy, can help us. to. It can empower us. It could change everything in the way we work with the medicines of our world in such a way that we really could heal self and world at the same time. We really could heal nature and culture at the same time. And love wisdom is what we need. We're not going to get it from the scientists, from the sciences, no matter how sincere. You can study the brain all day. You have to make philosophical decisions, not only about how to conduct science, but what to do with the results, how to interpret them, what questions to ask. And we have a lot riding on us. The situation has become quite intense. Let's send greetings and gratitude again to everyone out there trying their best to work with the medicines of our world to help heal the situation. Let's just wish them well, wish ourselves well on the journey of healing, whatever medicines we work with. We can have a moment of compassion for each other and say, yeah, other people are experiencing this too. The questions that I have, the hopefulness that I have, the despair that I sometimes feel, the excitement, the frustration, the grief. Other people are experiencing it and they're trying to help. And let's join together in dialogue, in discernment, in turning to the lineages of our world to find the guidance there. And let's keep in mind that all sentient beings depend on us. They're just like us too. They can suffer. They're suffering the human insanity because the human insanity affects the whole community of life and the suffering of non-human beings is vast, as it is in the human realm. Our suffering is intense, too. And we're all in this together. We're interwoven. And we can see that not only do we feel profound sense of suffering on behalf of people who are caught in wars all, all over the place, not just in Eastern Europe... But we see that those wars affect us. We're we're sensing the interwovenness. We didn't make the world more interconnected than it was. We just made things so precarious that it's now more obvious to us, some level of that interwovenness. In order to allow the wisdom traditions to help us, we have to begin to understand the holism they can teach us. They, They teach that interwovenness, which is not easy to explain. We have to enter it. And we can't just follow any old philosophy we fancy because the situation we find ourselves in with all the injustice, degradation, aggression, and so on, that only happened because of bad philosophy. Philosophy is how we do things. And if we don't do things in accord with a skillful and holistic philosophy of life, we end up fragmenting ourselves and our world. And we see the consequences of that every day in the news. We don't even have to watch the news, we just step outside and look around. But if we want to talk about a holistic philosophy of life, we have to let go of what we think the word holism might mean, because a lot of people like the sound of holism. Sounds wonderful. A lot of people advertise their approach to this or that version of the self-help catastrophe as holistic. And so we either abandon the world holism or we try to rehabilitate it and recover a healthy, vitalizing and skillful sense of holism. Because of the pervasiveness of what people call holistic and systems approaches, that's another popular way to put it. We take a systems approach or we use systems thinking. That's, I mean, there are different varieties of it. But because we hear that everywhere, one of the problems is just that if somebody says, hey, we need a holistic philosophy of life, it can sound boring or silly or obvious. And then everyone's saying, well, that's ob- I'm already doing that, or these people over there are doing that. But we could explore at least the possibility that we don't know what holism means anymore, mainly because we don't really know what philosophy means either. This foundational confusion makes holism something that will require study and practice to understand. And that goes all together with the very idea of a holistic philosophy of life. In that phrase, a holistic philosophy of life, we can begin to sense that holism, at the very least, means not fragmented and fragmenting. And philosophy means wisdom, love, and beauty. We need a holistic love, a holistic wisdom, and a holistic sense of beauty and grace. We can't unfold all the meaning of holism or a holistic philosophy of life in one or even a dozen contemplations, but we can begin to approach it. You know, we, we mentioned the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, and that sutra unpacks holism over 1,500 pages. It's a true, deep ecological and spiritual holism of the cosmos. And we're not going to do that, and I know you're all glad about that. But we can try to touch some of the core issues, keeping in mind The dominant culture does everything it can to prevent us from arriving at a holistic philosophy in life, including playing the game of making us think we already know it. That's a great strategy. And keeping us away from a holistic philosophy of life, keeping us away from philosophy in general keeping us away from nature, keeping us away from the arts, that's central to the way education functions in the dominant culture. It's not necessarily deliberate. Nobody's passed out a memo saying let's keep everybody away from a holistic philosophy. It's just automatic. It's the same way that the New York Times just automatically is not going to really publish a Marxist critique of the dominant culture. When we go to work with the medicines of our world, we sometimes do so with a feeling of wanting to go beyond the limitations of the dominant culture. And that's, in fact, what some people feel they're doing when they work with some of these medicines, maybe especially psychedelic medicines, because the experiences can be quite intense. So we can feel we're really going beyond the limitations. And out of rebellion maybe, or on some other basis, maybe the intense basis of the intensity of the experiences in, with some of these medicines, we may think we have a holistic approach. But we have many reasons to become skeptical of ourselves. That doesn't mean we stop trusting ourselves. Rather, it means deepening our trust in ourselves and our world. When we look with a lot of care and affectionate awareness, we usually find considerable fragmentation in our approaches to life. We can see examples of this all over the culture. And a big one is mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness and meditation created a significant impact in domains like therapy, education, leadership. It's still unfolding. The whole self-help catastrophe embraced meditation and mindfulness. It offered us a way to take a novel practice and do what conquest consciousness does, which is manipulate and control it. It was novel. Also, it was apparently powerful. That helps because it seems enticing. And we feel really good because now we've got a new tool in our toolbox. Meditation and mindfulness, it's a tool in the therapist's Toolbox, it's a tool in the teacher's toolbox, it's a tool in our personal toolbox. We love tools! But in a way, that already shows a style of thinking and a degree of confusion. For one thing, we ourselves are ultimately the only tool we can use, and no one teaches us how to use that tool. And then again, we aren't really tools at all. Not if tools are objects that we use to gain leverage on the world usually for some human agenda. So mindfulness isn't a tool either. Mindfulness arises as an aspect of a larger ecology of practice oriented toward revealing the nature of reality. When we speak about mindfulness outside of that ecology, we have to put it in quotes because it's not the same thing anymore. We yanked a fragment out of a larger ecology of mind. We called it mindfulness. But we can forget that mindfulness doesn't mean anything outside of an ecology. The ecology mindfulness came from is sophisticated, nuanced, detailed and deadly serious. And it's genius. Buddha was a genius and a truly great psychologist and philosopher. Because of that, in some sense, if we have a basic understanding of mindfulness, we could understand that it applies to our mind, obviously, and that it has to do with awareness. So if we think, wait, so Buddha was a great philosopher and a great psychologist, this thing mindfulness, it applies to mind, right? And it's about awareness. So it carries a universal aspect, right? That's right. And at the same time, as a concept and a practice, it still belongs to a larger ecology, a larger context. And Buddha, in fact, foresaw the problem here. He was that visionary. He specifically said, handle my teachings the way you would handle a poisonous snake. I say that all the time when I'm talking about anything related to the wisdom traditions, any of the teachings of the wisdom traditions. We need to have this spiritual surgeon general's warning stamped on all the teachings we receive. Buddha said, handle this medicine as if it were poison. And here we are talking about working with the medicines of the world. And he presented this medicine, a medicine of our world, and said, handle it like it's a poison. Do we handle psychedelics or any other medicines like they're poison? Or do we run to them like they are medicine, without thinking about this spiritual surgeon general's warning? Of course, we can relate to the medicines of our world with reverence, with respect, and with a sense of that the medicine can facilitate healing. We can have an attitude that if we can relate with the medicine skillfully, it could bring about healing and transformative insight. And that's all good. But Buddha really wanted to make our spiritual materialism clear. And so he said something that is still true no matter how much reverence we have for the medicine we're working with, he said, this is a poison. But if you work with it skillfully and ethically, then it's a medicine. At least it can be. And in one sense, this has to do with erring on the side of wisdom when we're not yet wise enough to understand a larger perspective. But it's not mere caution. It's also the reality of spiritual materialism. As a profound philosopher, Buddha knew that people would run and grab at his philosophy. He knew people would get all excited, and at the same time, the culture and the ego would find ways to make the medicine into a poison. It's like he was ready for the 21st century, he was post postmodern. When you read the best Buddhist philosophers, they have been for a long time. He knew people would grasp at things like mindfulness and meditation and that they would try to keep the ego's agendas and the culture's agendas going with them. That the culture and the ego would use mindfulness, meditation and other elements of his philosophy to further their agenda rather than to become attuned to to wisdom, love and beauty and to arrive at real liberation, healing, mutuality. But we can dissolve this problem by listening to the wisdom traditions, actually listening to the teachings they offer and putting them into practice. And part of dissolving and transcending the problem involves understanding, as with any holistic philosophy that Buddhist philosophy's words and the practices they refer to arise as integral to a much larger ecology of mind. And we shortchange ourselves, each other, the world, and these traditions, our ancestors. We shortchange our ancestors who gave everything to pass this wisdom on to us, And, again, we shortchange ourselves and our world and each other if we don't understand that we cannot rip out fragments and fancy that it won't cause problems. That doesn't mean Christians or atheists can't practice mindfulness or meditation, but that everyone has an ethical responsibility to practice them as part of a holistic ecology. We'll try to get to some of the details about what that means, But when we look at our smash-and-grab version of meditation and mindfulness, we see that a lot gets left out. And considering some of the, the stuff that gets left out, at least very briefly, can also help us understand wholeness, if we think carefully. So first of all, love and compassion got left out in many versions of meditation and mindfulness, even though love and compassion are central to Buddhist philosophy and practice. Isn't that already funny in a kind of cosmic way? If we had to guess what was left out of a powerful stream in the wisdom traditions of the world, when it went mainstream in the dominant culture, does it surprise us that love and compassion got left out? If you had to predict, what's the dominant culture going to try to squeeze out of a powerful stream from the wisdom traditions of the world? Well, love and compassion seem like good candidates. Equally unsurprising, a lot of wisdom got left out. We actually left out the wisdom from the wisdom traditions when they went mainstream. Not completely. We've got fragments. Otherwise, they wouldn't have enough fuel to do what they do. It's the fragmenting of the wisdom. This part of the danger. So what's elements of wisdom? A lot of them, of course, but one aspect of wisdom that got left out would be the basic cosmogram or view of ourselves in reality as well as the deeper meaning of intention. And really more got left out than got included. And so we end up with a very anemic version of a holistic philosophy of life, which inevitably leads to problems. Now, the hope seems to have been that since wisdom, love, and beauty are totally interwoven, then if we focus on the beauty dimension, the wisdom and love will naturally arise. And to some extent, they can. And to some extent, they did. And what I mean by that is that meditation and mindfulness are integral to the beauty aspect. Meditation refers to the mind of beauty, but also the mind of wisdom and love. And since the dominant culture has become virulently infected with fragmentation, we have to actively practice, actively practice the unity of wisdom, love, and beauty. In other words, we need a very deliberate holism, not an accidental one, not a partial one. But instead of pursuing a deliberate holism, we fragmented the tradition that gave us mindfulness. And this naturally led to negative side effects. Now we find the story that certain people can't meditate. And I want to respect the fact that there is suffering in people who say this. It's just a matter of the negative side effects of this fragmentation. Someone may say, well, my therapist told me meditation is contraindicated for people like me. And this just indicates a confusion about the nature of meditation. Or they may say, I've tried meditation, you know, it just doesn't work for me, or it traumatized me, or any number of things that come from this fragmented view of what meditation is. And again, there's legitimate suffering arising for people who express things like this, that's for sure. But let's also respect the fact that exactly what Buddha said would happen, happened. The medicine became a poison for people. It's not the fault of meditation or mindfulness, but rather the way we worked with them and the context that we have which maybe is an unprecedented context of suffering in a certain way, it's certainly a very different, different arrangement of suffering. There are all sorts of varietals of suffering and constellations of suffering that seem to be pretty novel in the context of the dominant culture. It's like the dominant culture is a special development of something that we could reasonably call insanity. And I'm not using that term in, in, in the kind of pejorative sense that it's sometimes used, but the way we would try to diagnose the soul of the culture and say that there's real incoherence here, real tension, real suffering, real conflict. Now, the bigger danger might not seem obvious. Because this isn't the bigger danger, the fact that certain people feel that they can't meditate or that it's a problem for them in some way. The bigger danger goes beyond taking a fragment from the wisdom traditions and then finding out we don't feel so good as a result. Because at least there, we've got feedback that tells us we did something wrong. The negative side effects are a little bit more obvious and they are, you could say, localized in our experience and they let us know we got the practice wrong. And that can help mitigate some of the danger in at least some cases. But in some ways, the even bigger danger appears when we fragment these traditions and we think we feel great. We effectively use fragments of these traditions to medicate ourselves while we perpetuate the pattern of insanity. We find examples of this all over our culture. For instance, when hedge fund managers practice meditation. Or when Amazon employees work with equine-assisted learning experiences when they are working with horse medicine. Or when Silicon Valley employees work with microdosing. I think here of of, uh, James Fadiman. Some of you who are familiar with the psychedelic research world might know of psychedelic researcher James Fadiman, he often says, in reference to microdosing, that when people microdose, they'll say, well, it was just a really good day. They didn't have any big trippy experience. That's the whole point of microdosing, is you don't have anything pronounced. But people who microdose will report that they felt it was a really good day. And that is Wonderful. At the same time, if we have a really good day, maybe that means we didn't register how the work we did that day shouldn't have been done by anybody. Or that maybe it was important to do that work, but it nevertheless degraded ecologies. And we could go on and on. The point is that under the right circumstances, we can feel really good while doing things on balance we shouldn't do. And feeling good can cover over large-scale structures of ignorance, confusion, incoherence. Now, I don't want to take a good day away from anyone. I don't want people to suffer. But if we medicate over larger issues, then we run the risk of just moving the suffering around, both into the future and onto other beings. When we suffer, when we feel unhappy or unwell, our suffering may arise because of large-scale issues that we cannot fix by locating the problem inside of ourselves. We might medicate a bleeding sore, and it might feel better. It might even stop bleeding and seem to heal. But it won't really help us if the bleeding sore appeared there because of a systemic infection or even, for instance, because of a radiation source outside of ourselves. When we medicate, sometimes we have obvious negative side effects and sometimes we create far more subtle negative side effects. The first issue of holism then amounts to taking a fragment of from a larger ecology and trying to work with it, but perpetuating problems or even creating more problems as a result. That's, par- that's part of the essence of the self-help catastrophe, is we take a fragment of wisdom, it's all shiny and glowy because it's wisdom. But we don't realize, we, we think we're, we're holding the sun, but we're holding a little kind of burning ember. It's not even on fire. It's just glowing. It's a glowing ember but we think we've got the sun there and then we're running around with a glowing ember and it's not enough to do the the work we need. And it ends up creating problems if we happen to be running around with this glowing ember and we're in a house made of straw. So we've got to go out to the ecology where we can work with that energy and we have to be in that larger ecology of realization. When we work with any medicine, we run the risk of doing so in a way that pulls the medicine, so to speak, out of nowhere. It's actually an abstraction. It's an abstract approach. So mindfulness is an abstraction in a certain way because it's it's not real and concrete because of the fact it's ignoring a larger ecology. And it's trying to take little pieces of something rather than saying, okay, there's a holism here. How do we address that? And it's very funny because the real philosophers like Buddha and so many others They were not interested in abstractions. People often get confused when certain set of concepts or practices try to orient us toward intimacy. We are so unfamiliar with intimacy that we treat them as if that's an abstraction. We say, oh, wow, that's over my head, or this is a bunch of abstraction, but it has turned us or tried to turn us away from the whole abstraction of our life. We are constantly living abstractions and we have turned mindfulness and meditation and even psychedelics into abstractions because we don't have the sensitivity to holism required to make sure that those medicines don't become poison. If we consider a medicine like ayahuasca, we can recognize that most of the people from the dominant culture who work with that medicine have no intention of becoming a member of an Amazonian tribe. And thank goodness for that. Now, maybe some rare people will get adopted by one of the indigenous tribes. Or in some other way, they'll be totally embraced. And that is truly wonderful. And those people might have some important role to play in helping the beings and the ecologies in the Amazon. And maybe in other places, too. But for the most part most of us will not have that kind of transition. And therefore, we end up using these medicines in ecologies where we live that are not where the medicines are from. Or we may go to those other ecologies, and then we have to come back to the ecologies where we do, in fact, live. And then we find we're again out of context. We don't have the context to maintain the practice, to maintain the realization. And so when everything shakes out, no matter what our intentions might be, we may end up turning the medicine into a tool in our toolbox. And that goes with a fragmented approach. Again, we may not be intending that. It's not the issue of whether or not anybody has a good experience. It's not the issue of what people's intentions are. It's whether or not subtle forms of fragmentation invade the process because of the context we're in. We're in a context of fragmentation, and it's in us. We may want to work with a certain medicine because we experience PTSD or maybe anxiety, depression, whatever it might be. And this thinking, too, arises from our fragmentation in an important sense. Because our PTSD, our anxiety, our depression, or whatever it might be, that belongs to a larger whole. A holistic philosophy tells us there's no such thing as some randomly floating symptom. It belongs to an ecology. What we refer to as my depression, my cancer, or whatever it might be, that arises as part of a larger ecology that reliably gives rise to the same symptoms in other beings. The dominant culture produces cancer in millions of us, human and non-human. It produces depression, loneliness, and suffering of all kinds, and other beings also experience it. Some of the things might be more in a human population, but many forms of the things that we humans experience, other non-human beings also experience it, like trauma, anxiety, cancer. And all of this, the PTSD, the depression, the addiction, these are not accidents and they're not necessities. We could live in a culture where depression was extraordinarily rare. There would be grief, of course. But we could live in a culture where depression didn't exist. Not just that we would have the experience but would call it something else, like demonic possession or something. No, we could live in a culture where that set of symptoms just wouldn't arise or would only arise in very exceptional cases. We could live in a culture where we never encountered anybody with PTSD. That's possible. In order to have PTSD, we have to get traumatized. We need the conditions to create trauma. We also need the conditions to reliably perpetuate that trauma, conditions where we don't know how to heal it, and then it becomes persistent or chronic, a chronic form of suffering. Gregory Bateson talked about this as well as part of trying to get us to ask the question of how we can move both from and toward wholeness, how we can touch the unity of mind and nature. And one of his examples is one I always love, which is when he points out that we have set up the so-called justice system to punish people for what we refer to as criminal acts. But Bateson realized that this amounts to insanity. It fragments everything and locates the problem inside some person we call a criminal. We effectively use the word crime to refer to an action or a part of an action Crime doesn't have to do with this or that action or part of an action. Crime needs to refer to a whole way of organizing our activity. It refers to a whole way of organizing our experience and our lives. The existence of crime, the existence of these ways of organizing experience and activity, indicates that our lives have gotten way out of kilter because of the larger ecology of mind. The larger ecology of mind produces these patterns. The larger ecology of mind gives rise to either skillful or unskillful ways of organizing our experience. And there's a really deep significance to calling the U.S. justice system, justice in quotes, a prison industrial complex. Just examine a little bit of the data about that system. It's ridiculous. The number of people in the dominant culture at its leading edge, which is the U.S. The U.S. is the leading edge of the pattern of insanity. And there you have an incredible number of people under the thumb of the justice system. And it's funny how similar they look. The larger ecology of mind thus helps to constitute a way of life that we define as criminal. And it produces people with a predilection to give into or even to feel forced into things they would otherwise reject as unethical. We locate that problem inside those people. And yet the so-called criminal is both a symptom of a larger ecology with unhealthy elements and also a tragic loss of potential. Because in a different ecology, the person we refer to as a criminal might have developed into someone we would naturally think of as a hero, or at least a wise, loving, and graceful being who eventually could become an elder in their community. We constantly encounter symptoms and try dealing with them in a manner that ignores underlying causes, the holistic causes, because underlying causes tend to involve larger ecologies of mind that we have little skill in sensing and working with. Those symptoms point to interwovenness, and that means to solve those problems we need to renounce something, to let go of something the ego wants to cling to. And that means things we don't need, but that the ego wants to cling to. We're not talking about renouncing things that we actually need. We're talking about the end of self-deception. And it feels overwhelming to have to challenge the larger culture. For one, because it just seems like so much effort. When suffering appears in the form of depression, trauma, cancer, anxiety, or whatever it might be, it feels like enough already just to deal with that in an isolated way. With some forms of suffering, it can feel so hard just to get through the day. We put so much energy into treading water, trying not to drown. And we need to address our suffering. No question about it. We need to try to find a way to heal in a Part of healing, we could begin to ask, well, how did this happen? And not in the usual sense of locating the problem inside of us, but asking about the larger ecologies that reliably produce these symptoms that we find, quote unquote, in our body, in my body. And we can see how well the pattern of insanity holds together because it takes so much energy to deal with our PTSD, our ADHD, our MS, and all the other things that we can get afflicted by. And on top of that, just dealing all the energy that goes into just managing our symptoms and our suffering, we also have to deal with The rest of our lives, we might have to still have our full-time job while going to therapy or chemo or whatever treatments we need. We might have to take care of our children and deal with a hundred other things. And so we don't feel that we have the time or the energy to sit together and engage in good dialogue, healing dialogue. As we're talking about the miracle and the medicine of instruction, of wisdom, of being together and thinking well together. There's medicine and magic in that. And our dialogue could go into these deeper issues and we could practice compassion for each other's suffering and all our illnesses and we could become more committed to helping each other heal in increasingly skillful ways. Now if we look at the dominant culture it could appear as though we're getting better at treating cancer. I mean there's some interesting breakthroughs that are happening not only with cancer, but with a lot of other things. It really seems like in the next 5 to 10 years they, they could crack Alzheimer's. And in 10 years' time, they may have some extraordinary treatments for cancer. But because of the fragmented approach of the dominant culture, we also are going to end up just shifting that suffering around in space and time. After all, inequality keeps growing, ecologies keep degrading, Pollution keeps increasing. There's only so much mercury you can have in your water, so much pollution you can have in your air or your soil, and still think you're going to be okay. It doesn't matter if you can cure cancer. What's going to happen? We cannot practice fragmentation and ignorance in general without creating consequences. And maybe totally new consequences will appear, ones we've never seen before. Or maybe the current ones will get amplified or they'll evolve in some way and reach a point at which they destabilize nature and culture as we know it. And so we need wholeness in every aspect of what we think healing means. We need to find a way to move from and toward wholeness as we practice the art of healing and working with the medicines of our world. A holistic approach Leads us to ask with a lot of sensitivity and depth, a lot of nuance, really a mind of not knowing. A holistic philosophy invites us to touch that not knowing. I don't, what if I don't know? To reach the place of being able to say, I don't know, and then ask, well, what is the nature of my unwellness? And what is the nature of the healing that I need? Because maybe it's not that I, as an individual, need this healing, but the world needs healing. And some of the symptoms, yeah, they appeared in my body and mind, relatively speaking, but that's because the world is asking me to pay attention to it, to the whole. And none of this is very easy to navigate. Sometimes people say they take a holistic approach to healing and they use words like mind, body, and spirit. Maybe they say, we take a holistic approach that includes the whole person integrating heart, mind, body, and soul or something along those lines, and it can sound really nice. In many cases, it can amount to the same style of thinking that got us into this mess. Because in one sense, maybe all we've done is put more parts inside the same bag of skin. We still becomes something fragmented away from the rest of reality. And the wisdom traditions teach us that we won't find our true nature inside that bag of skin, not in any of the parts and not in the parts taken together. And so a deeper holism invites us to see that, strictly speaking, we don't know where the borders of us are, and that, in fact, we might not have any borders in an absolute sense. And thus, a holistic approach demands that we talk about the ecologies we depend on and also that we talk about the stupid jobs we feel trapped in and the car exhaust and social media and the mission to Mars and countless other things. If we localize the wholeness and say, well, but I'm treating all the parts of this person It may be that by default, because of the context, that we've left the person still in parts, and we've put the integration, the so-called integration, inside of this bag of skin. Because context matters, and we are in a context of fragmentation. And again, it has infected us. If we can't see that, we're in bigger trouble. At least if we could begin to say, yes, maybe it has infected us. Me, even me, maybe I'm infected with this, this conquest consciousness. Of course, I'm fighting against it, I'm resisting it, I'm doing everything I can. What if it still has us in subtle ways that we really need to see? Now, as with everything we've discussed, we can find inspiring counter examples. And in some of those cases, we, we may also find further confusions. Who knows? I mean, somebody could be free of all of this, or maybe there's there are degrees, and we still can ask these questions. So some person might say, well, I definitely take a holistic approach, and I don't just treat parts inside of a bag of skin. I don't think of it that way at all. But whatever you personally think, if you're listening to this contemplation, thinking along, thinking with us, all of us who are thinking through this, it might be that you don't do this, but maybe far too many other people do. And then we still need your voice in the dialogue, talk about how we can navigate it. And the trouble is, for every person who says they take a holistic approach, we have to ask what that really means in this context. If we live in this larger pattern of insanity, if we've been affected by it, we grew up in it, or maybe it just affected us from afar, then our thinking has gotten co-opted in ways that we might not be able to easily detect. We don't realize that the ideas we have and the patterns of thought and action we have are not, strictly speaking, our possession. Rather, they arise from a larger ecology of mind. So a person might take a seemingly holistic approach in their relationship with a patient, client, or friend. And let's even say they did that. With the client, they go in and they can take this holistic approach. And they really do feel that they're touching the holism, but then in the rest of their life, they might largely live in accord with the fragmentation of the dominant culture. So our lives might scream fragmentation overall, but in one little domain, maybe in one ceremony every month, or whatever it might be, our bi-monthly trip to Peru, whatever thing is, there we touch a little bit of wholeness, but all the rest of the time we're living fragmentation. In the dominant culture, since certain experiences have become endangered or even extinct for all practical purposes, then when it comes to holism, we lack a general framework for even knowing what we're talking about, or at least that's a possibility. And this presents questions on the largest scales because even scholars have recognized that we might have lost 90% of the art and literature the dominant culture has ever produced, especially the textual stuff. If you look, say, from the fire at the Library of Alexandria all the way up to today, with all the things we've had, wars and fires and floods, the goal of the Library of Alexandria was to have every text ever produced. And we have to remember that in order for a text to survive, it had to be hand-copied for a very long time. And so many texts survive only in small numbers of copies because of all that labor that it took. And texts are vulnerable to fire, flood, infestation, and many precious works may never have been written down, let alone all the ones that were written and then lost to time. And many of the texts got lost for the same basic reason the library at Alexandria burned, and that is Conquest Consciousness. Conquest consciousness has affected us all, and it has weakened the dominant culture. It's weakened other cultures and nature too, in so many ways. And we in the dominant culture have lost probably a significant amount of wisdom, so that we don't necessarily even know what our own culture is, or at least could have been. We don't really understand what it could have been. And as part of that, we effectively lost philosophy in this culture. Now, it's not just that everything burned. Of course, for a while, we didn't even have Plato as we touched on. We didn't have Plato and Aristotle. That, had, that was preserved in uh, the Byzantine and Arabic cultures. And so they had to be returned to us, and we just got lucky there, really. It, it could be 2022, and we don't know who Plato is. But the reason we are where we are is that we lost philosophy. And the reason we're talking about a philosopher's guide to working with the medicines of the world is because the wisdom traditions still are a storehouse of insight, understanding, love, and grace. And we've lost touch with them, but we, can, we, we have a lot. We might have lost a lot. I mean, the point of that was just to try to have some humility. You know, this idea that we've lost a lot, we need humility, but that doesn't mean all is lost. <laughs> we, 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 we can find it. And we have teachings to go by, and the world is still here to teach us. All the community of life is ready to teach us. The great mystery itself is ready to instruct. Sophia is waiting for us to see with our wisdom eyes, our true eyes. And then all this means we're asking the question how. In this context of fragmentation, how do we think we're going to work optimally with the medicines of our world? And we're just suggesting that we have to go beyond merely asserting that our approach is holistic, and we have to inquire more deeply into how to reactivate and calibrate our very sensitivity to wholeness. And sometimes this appears so inconvenient that the ego feels threatened, and then it you know, it, it takes offense ultimately, and we can have reactions that we give reasons to. You know, we start rationalizing. But that too is a reason why we need to have compassion. We have to practice compassion and learn how to help each other through these sorts of challenges. I often mention a delightful friend who has a naturopathic healthcare practice. And my friend told me about a patient who came in because of a severe allergic reaction to their car. So the patient became allergic to their own car. And the naturopath worked with the patient. And because it's a skilled practitioner, this person is a skilled practitioner, soon enough the patient could drive again. The patient very much needed to drive. They had a whole life that depended on it. Nevertheless, I pointed out to my friend that in a more enlightened culture that patient might have been the equivalent of a shaman, a person of exceptional sensitivity to wholeness, a person of insight. And in that other kind of culture, they might have encountered a car, let's say for the first time, and they might have announced to their fellow citizens, this thing is no good. This thing, it's a big problem, and we shouldn't have it around, or we need to control its use, really limit it, restrict it. But the ego does not want to even have to consider organizing human life with radically fewer cars, or even no cars at all. I mean, that seems inconceivable. What are you talking about? That's crazy. People don't want to hear, what if we can't get on jet airplanes, you know? Like, we're going to have world travel. And, and, and how is that going to be equitable? So all 7, 8 billion human beings can get on a plane whenever they want and they can go wherever they want? And what's going to regulate it? How much money they have? So is that okay? And if we all have enough money to go anytime we want on a plane, is that, going to, is that world going to be the world you think is going to be livable? And all this can sound crazy. We just don't want to hear it. But what if that's the message the soul wants to get through to us? What if the soul was trying to tell this person, "You see that thing, That thing you call a car? That's no good. You need to stay away from it. It's causing trouble. <laughs> but we don't want to hear. It. I wouldn't want to be that person stuck with that message either. Another aspect of this appeared in a, a film I saw recently. It's called "Embrace of the Serpent." It offers a lot to ponder for anyone affected by the dominant culture, and it has some lovely cinematography in it as well. And at one point in the film, we see a person from the dominant culture exploring in the Amazon, and he gets incredibly upset that an indigenous person has taken his compass. And this is back at the turn of the last, cent- last century, 1909 is when this is set, this uh, scene around 1909. And so he's upset that some indigenous person has taken his compass. And it's it's not about the personal possession. It's not someone stole my compass. That's not it. Rather, he worries that the indigenous people will lose their knowledge of how to navigate their own land, their own ecology. He recognizes the wholeness of their way of knowing and understands that this is a fragment taken from some other culture one that's not necessarily healthy. Now, this is a nuanced issue, and even the shaman that this fellow is with, the one who has the compass, he's a European fellow, and he's with a shaman there, and the shaman, too, has to wrestle with it because we have to find a way of knowing that facilitates mutual illumination, mutual nourishment, mutual liberation. But the ways of knowing of the dominant culture, generally speaking, in the mainstream now, present, they move from and toward fragmentation, not from and toward wholeness. Now, that's what our wisdom traditions teach, but can we abandon those? We talked about that in the last contemplation. We abandon wisdom in place of this fragmented and fragmented form of knowledge, information, data, what we call objectivity. And we're not advocating, then, the other side, subjectivity. We're trying to find the middle way. But because of this nature of the dominant culture, this tendency to move from and toward fragmentation, well, then we don't understand wholeness, and we're trying to ask how we can move from and toward wholeness. As if the central question we all need to ask is, what really is wholeness? What is it? And how do we arrive at it and move in accord with it? Not assert that we're going to take a holistic approach, but first say, well, wait a second, do we know what that is? Before we run around with holistic approaches, maybe we should find out. And again, mindfulness and meditation are good examples of that. We'll talk more about them a little bit uh, later as we wrap up these contemplations about a philosopher's guide to working with the medicines of our world. But we're talking about it here just as a way to get at the issues around holism, to try to understand how much maybe we don't understand. That's it. That's the first step. And as a general trend, we learn things like mindfulness and meditation and other medicines. We learn them in a degraded ecology. In some sense, maybe it should strike us as absurd to suggest we could perform a mindfulness body scan, and this will somehow lead to real transformation and healing. And on the other hand, given our ecology, we can experience it this way. When we start off with such a deficit of wisdom in our culture, and such an abundance of ignorance and fragmentation, then we can become astonished by relatively superficial practices and insights. They can dazzle us, even the most fragmented pieces. Because again, if they're fragments of wisdom, then people can have huge experiences with them. It can become a profound revelation for someone to do body scans. I don't want to take that away from people because there's something that's important there. But it doesn't mean that we should encourage people to practice in a fragmented way. The fact that people have nice experiences and even seem to be healing, that doesn't make it ethically responsible to teach fragmented practices. For a variety of reasons, not least of which what we're cheating them that they're missing, you know. So we're leaving out all this other stuff that might be way more important for people. They could experience a deeper healing, and we're risking their healing. We're risking all the things that we're talking about. We're risking that they might be just moving their suffering around or satisfying themselves with an incomplete healing just because it feels so much better. One of the ways we see indigenous traditions demonstrate responsiveness to this very issue, one of the places they show their understanding comes in the way a shaman in some cultures might embrace the use of things like antibiotics or or aspirin. A shaman might see a member of their community and say, well, you know what, I think you've got an infection. So let's go to the nearest doctor, and they might take them. Go see a doctor or send them. Say, report back, tell me what happens. So the doctor diagnoses the person and says, yeah, you have an infection. They say, you're here, you've got to take these antibiotics. But the shaman in some of these cases, and here's, the, I think, a real wisdom, the shaman will still keep the medicine. They'll say, now, you come, they'll tell the patient, you come and see me every single day, and maybe three times a day. You know how some antibiotics, you have to take them three times a day. You've got to go see the shaman three times a day to get that pill. The shaman will keep the pills, and you have to go there staying in that holistic ecology. And the shaman might do other things with the patient as well, but the point is that they're, they're coming to the shaman, there's this whole vision that's at work there. So it's a noble attempt to practice the holism and to try to prevent the possibility of detaching healing from a larger ecology, because that won't work. That's going to lead to problems. Because we can just contrast that with the way the dominant culture has used antibiotics. Our use of them has created superbugs, antibiotic-resistant strains that present an existential threat to people. And that kind of contrast can begin to help us to see that fragmentation always creates negative side effects, negative consequences for us. An antibiotic might save our life, but if we have detached their use from larger ecologies, if we fail to practice from and toward holism, then we move suffering around. So what I mean is, 10 years later, we ourselves might get the superbug. Or maybe somebody else will. You see, we either moved it forward into the future, we, 10 years later, get the superbug, or we move it to somebody else. Somebody else's body gets the superbug. And either way, we participated in moving the problem around. And the case of an antibiotic might at first seem really different from, let's say, psychedelic medicines, or horse medicine, or dance, or music as medicine, but it all goes together. Why would we think we can use the antibiotic to heal our body, but we'll use the ayahuasca to heal our soul? Of course, sometimes people use ayahuasca to heal their body, too, but it's sort of treated spiritually. But if we use ayahuasca to heal our depression, where does that leave the world? You see, if we're taking that fragmented approach, what happens? Okay, I'm going to go get the the healing. I'll get the medicine, the ayahuasca. It'll fix my depression. Okay, but that's fragmented thinking. What happens? What are the consequences that come from that? If we go back to the case of antibiotics, in a wisdom culture, our doctor might know about antibiotics and might prescribe them in some cases. And our physician might say to us, Well, you know, you've got strep throat. So the first thing, most important thing, is for you to take this time to be silent and really appreciate silence. Don't talk. Your throat is sore. And this might be an important time for you to be quiet, to appreciate silence, increase meditation, And here are some meditations you can work with, some specific ones, some visualizations you can work with. And enter into the spirit of healing, the energy of healing. And let these visualizations heal you deeply. And so the whole experience of the arising of illness would get turned toward liberation, turned toward training the mind and heart and so on. That very infection and treating it with an antibiotic could become oriented toward our liberation, our mutual liberation with all beings, our mutual relationship with all beings, And we've had philosophers in the dominant culture try to point this out. Of course, way back with the ancient Greeks, physicians had to work with their patients philosophically. And philosophers were physicians of the soul. And we have figures like Hildegard. She was a holistic philosopher. What a vision, what a teaching, Veriditas. The healing, that the divine is flowing in the the medicines of the world. The presence of the divine is what is the active principle of these medicines. That's an incredible vision and orientation. Sacredness is in the medicine. And there's teachings there then. Nietzsche wrote about how convalescence can bring forth spiritual insight. We could always work with illness that way. But in the dominant culture, we get encouraged to get rid of symptoms as quickly as possible, to find a cure, even if we don't heal. We separate medication from medicine. We separate cures from healing. Medicines that seem to us more obviously to have to do with the soul, they come with a more clear burden, we could say, to establish a holistic ecology for ourselves to work with these medicines. It just seems more overt. There it is. It's, it's obvious in a certain sense, although it doesn't mean we understand it. It's just that it seems a more obvious call. And again, many, many people are trying to do that right now. They're working sincerely with the medicines of our world. And we just seem to need to acknowledge that our version of holism is very likely anemic. And that means we need critical thinking and a lot more education. So we can arrive at a holistic philosophy of life that we can practice moment to moment, both in the more overt healing contexts and the more subtle healing contexts. And we're trying to find real nourishment. That's the, the, the situation. We talked about this before when we are talking about the Buddha molecule that if we've got scurvy, it can, we can feel awful. We've got bleeding gums, we can have all sorts of problems. Not thinking straight. We just really can feel awful. Somebody throws us a sliver of lemon and it could cure us. We could feel a whole lot better, but that that doesn't mean we got a nourishing meal and it doesn't mean that that's going to sustain us and it doesn't mean it's going to help us heal the world because we also might not have gotten very much of an insight. Maybe we did, maybe we didn't. But we're trying to ask, how do we really get mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, mutual liberation? the healing of self and world at the same time and that means we just need to ask what does a holistic philosophy mean and we can outline some core elements so at the very least we'll do that you know we the first thing is just to ask this question i know it can seem tedious even i know this is we're being socratic we're saying we're trying to get ourselves to to be socrates with ourselves you know and what socrates used to do is ask people well, you think you know so much. He would go to someone who said, well, I'm a holistic healer. Oh, you understand holism. Oh, yes, Socrates, I do. And, and they, they might say, look at how many people I've helped. And, and Socrates would say, well, this is great. You've helped all these people, then you can illuminate for me. What is the nature of holism? And we're trying to just imagine in our own souls that maybe Socrates has asked us these questions and we're trying to ask them ourselves so that we could find the place of coming to say, well, maybe I don't know. That's the aporia. That's the feeling of, I don't know the way forward. And that's so scary, especially if we're suffering. Don't tell me that this, that this medicine I'm working with is not the way forward. I'm telling you it is. Okay. And we're just pausing to say, what if it is? And what if it is, and you could work with it even more skillfully? What if it has more to offer, but it's dangerous wisdom? And the ego doesn't want to hear it, and the culture does not want you to hear it, because it presents a big danger to the culture, to the structures of power. And we could just link arms and say, you know, it's okay. If we're in the territory of dangerous wisdom, the culture has indoctrinated us to resist it. It's like we've got an immune system that the culture's put in us, and we are automatically resistant And then, if we could you know, say, well, maybe I don't know, we could suggest, well, how about some elements of a holistic philosophy? Could we see if they make sense to us? And generally speaking, a holistic philosophy of life means a tradition, a lineage of realized elders. And not everyone in the tradition may be fully enlightened, they might not all be Sages, but the tradition has to have some advanced beings in it, some evidence of sagehood, consistent, not inconsistent, but a lineage of sagehood, a long history of verification and innovation. We want to know the teachings have gotten extensive experimental and thus empirical verification. And an important related point is that we need to value education and understand education as basically about experience and wisdom rather than mere intellect and knowledge. We can only ever educate for experience, and we have to ask what kinds of experience are really worth having, not merely for our own personal enjoyment, but for our spiritual fulfillment and for the benefit of all beings. We have to educate for experiences, that cultivate the whole of life onward. But we tend to forsake education in the dominant culture because the pattern of insanity of the culture cannot withstand real education. You see, if we had real education, we wouldn't have this nonsense. The culture depends on our not getting a holistic education. So then what happens is we forsake it in a variety of ways. And this touches on one aspect of the terrible school shootings we've witnessed. As we said earlier, the U.S. is the leading edge of the dominant culture, and the crisis in this culture is a philosophical crisis, and that fundamentally implicates education. In other words, we may naturally see acute symptoms at a place where an infection has become most intense. So many children find school a place disconnected from meaning and purpose. They find it a place of suffering, boredom, confusion, and embarrassment. They get picked on. They get stressed. No one gives them a path of life that helps them find themselves. No one tells them how to use their mind. No one tells them what the nature of mind even is. No one teaches them the skills of love and compassion. No one teaches them the meaning of meditation. No one teaches them how to realize the meaning of life and how to realize a purpose in life that the soul longs for rather than some purpose the deluded economy demands. No one wants to become another cog in the economic machine. And I'm not saying there aren't teachers out here, out there who, who do, try to do all those things. Of course. In everything that we're talking about, these are generalizations about the culture overall. There are beautiful exceptions, beautiful. We're talking about in general, if those exceptions were the rule, we wouldn't have these shootings. And we seem in general to have forgotten that all of life depends on education. Real life, the ecologies we depend on to survive, it's not a matter of economics. Education and culture go together in the most profound sense, and that means education and nature. Because we mistakenly think culture means something exclusive to humans. But in fact, everywhere we look, we find culture. Nature and culture arise in non-duality just as nature and mind arise in non-duality. When we look around the natural world, we may at first ignore all the culture going on and then we might start to perceive it in bits And it might look pretty thin to us, because culture to us means Shakespeare and the ballet and rock concerts and football games and museums and Marvel movies, you know. We don't see any of that. They don't have Iron Man out there in nature. And we look at the natural world, rather full of ourselves, about human culture, and we can't even perceive, let alone understand, the culture woven all throughout nature. But, you know, a little reflection, and we can remind ourselves. We know, for instance, that bacteria have communal activity. We've heard about quorum sensing in bacteria. And the fascinating behavior of beehives and the way a slime mold works. From the single-celled slime mold to the complex behavior of groups. We can see that our notions of intelligence, mind, and culture might need revision. Many of us don't yet find it natural, you know, just immediate, to think of evolution as a mental process or to see deeply into the ways all beings educate their young because of the total interwovenness of life and learning. When we think, for instance, of the spider wasp, oh, I, like, I love that being, that's we Encounter there a being who has learned how to sting a spider in such a way that the spider gets paralyzed but not killed. It's a remarkable act of precision. With no textbooks on spider anatomy to go by. And when she succeeds, the the spider wasp, Mama, when she succeeds, she stings the spider so that the spider's body is alive and fresh. It, she, the spider isn't killed. It's preserved, paralyzed, ready to be consumed by her little brood. And the wasp doesn't want to abandon that learning. She doesn't want to throw it away. That lineage, that education has passed down through generations upon generations. What we refer to as instinct involves education and that comes already in the organism's embodiment and it has to do with evolution as a mental process as a learning process we humans have a lot of education built into us too you know for instance we know how to heal a cut without having to look it up in a book no one has to teach us how to heal a cut now these days we do have to learn how to prevent infection But the actual putting back together of our tissues, we don't have to learn. And we don't have to learn a lot of things essential to our lives. On the other hand, we and other beings have a a great deal to learn from our elders. Wolves have to learn the coup de grace, or the kill bite they use to bring down an elk. It appears to require more than instinct, as far as the wolf researchers can tell. Young wolves seem to learn how to do it by watching the adults hunt. An even more convincing case might be orcas. If we, we look at the orcas who use beaching, they deliberately beach themselves in order to catch seals. And then they have to teach their young how to safely beach themselves because obviously we've all heard the expression of beached whale. It means a whale's trapped on the beach, can't get back in the water. So now, if your culture has developed that as a tactic, purposefully beaching, in order to catch seals, you've got to teach your young how to do it so they don't die. And they do it in a stepwise fashion. That's how wise they are. So first thing is the orcas go to beaches without any seals, and they find ones that are accessible. You know, They, they find a, a beach where they can nudge their pups up onto the beach and it's an easy one to get off. It's like the beaching equivalent of skiing the bunny slope, we could say. So first they start out on the bunny slope. And their mama helps them to beach themselves and then get back off the beach. And then they go and practice where the seals are. And the mothers will forego getting as much food as they normally would so that they can focus on helping and teaching their pups So the mothers, for instance, if a pup got stuck in the more advanced beach, the more advanced slope, the mothers could create a big wave with their bodies. They could help free a stuck pup. Now this indicates whale culture understands a learning curve. Not just fancy human psychologists who can put it in a textbook. The whales understand it. And they understand the importance of making an investment in the education of their young. And maybe orcas understand that better than some humans in the dominant culture. And so we can appreciate the profound role learning plays in our world, in the whole community of life. And when we understand and appreciate learning deeply enough, then we'll value good teachers and good teachings all the more. And that means going against a strong current in the U.S. of hating experts and pretending as if every single thing that every single person wants to say has equal value and deserves to go viral. The popularity of a book or an idea or a meme does not have any necessary connection with its level of wisdom, love, and beauty, nor does the wealth or position of the person speaking. It seems important for us to recognize that knowing the most important things in life requires us to become the kinds of people capable of knowing those things. And that makes ethics and our style of consciousness and thinking totally interwoven with knowing. We can easily miss this fact, and we tend to treat knowledge as if it exists independently of knowers. This interwovenness of knower and known means A teacher has to become someone worthy of being listened to so that we don't listen merely out of politeness or because they have a position of authority. And that bothers people sometimes, in part because it can seem like a pretty daunting standard. And so we can get confused. You know, who wants to hear that standard? I have to become a good person because, you know, if if I'm a scientist, I can just go and run the experiment and I've got the answer. So, therefore, I have knowledge. And the point is, no, you have fragmented the world in that approach by not being concerned about what kind of person you've become, what kind of knower you've become. If you haven't recognized the interwovenness of knower and known, you will fragment the world. That's what we said Last time, that the science we have goes all together with the ec- ecological degradation. If you look at the world and you say, hey, there are some real problems here. Now, if you think everything's great and you believe Stephen Pinker and Bill Gates and we have enlightenment now, okay, this is not the right podcast for you. It's not the right contemplation. I don't know that we, we could talk about it. But generally speaking, if you do look around and you say, well, there are some problems. There, I do know about pollution in the water and degradation of the soil and all the rest. Well, science contributed to that because of this thought, this confusion that we can get. Because we have no holistic philosophy organizing the dominant culture, people can rise to the rank of teacher, judge, CEO, senator, or even president. And yet we might not find them meeting the standards the soul comes built with. That's what the soul has learned. The soul has spiritual instincts, and we may ignore them, but only at our peril. When we ignore them, the ego might eventually project those standards onto something else or someone else, so that we decide a certain politician really is a great person, a hero, a savior, and will truly believe that this person can save America, even if they went bankrupt running a casino and seem to have continual ethical and even moral failings. And the fault is not just on one side of the political divide. We can also make that mistake because the person that we voted for has the skin color we think is morally appropriate for the position. So we'll mistake a person's skin color for somehow meaning that they can help us and save us. It doesn't matter what skin color we're talking about, but if we think that just because we elected a white person president that that's going to save America, or if we think that we elected a person of color or a biological female as president, that this will save us. No, that's that's a, a very confused notion. And we've had biological females run for president who seem every bit as infected with conquest consciousness as anybody else. And the same goes for people of color who run for office. Happens all the time. So we're talking about our common human challenge here. Trying to break down these confusions where we're looking in the wrong direction. And we fall for these sorts of things because the soul demands so passionately that we find the real deal. The soul wants us to find virtuous and good people, people who have become wise, compassionate, and graceful. Not finding them, we often will settle for demagogues. Not always, but it happens. There's pressure that builds up in the soul, and we project on top of those demagogues so that the ego can feel like it has found what the soul wanted us to seek, and that it can say, you know, leave me alone already. Look, I found it. Here it is. It's the, it's the savior you were asking me to find, the wise person, the teacher. But in a healthy culture, what the soul seeks would be present for us. We could find it. And we wouldn't have to project it onto something unfitting or someone unfitting. And we can think here, too, of certain indigenous cultures. In some indigenous cultures, children are doted on. But that doesn't mean that they're expected to speak very much. In many cultures, children are expected to observe in detail, to listen, to look, to feel. And why would that be? Why all this observing? Why the emphasis on observing? I won't speak for indigenous people. But we know that indigenous cultures arrived at sophisticated practices for many things, including education. And they may have understood that a child must learn to observe intensely. They must cultivate sensory appreciation, all the senses. And that children have a natural capacity for doing that. They're ready to be attuned, you know. They're waiting to find out. So uh, we know when we come out of the womb, we have all kinds of potential. And then there's this process that the dominant culture refers to as neural pruning. You know, and we have this... Ramachandran has said that he believes that everybody's got savant potentials. And through, for a variety of reasons, they get pruned out or covered over. So we've got no idea, really, for most of us, what our potential could be. If we were in a place where the soul was being asked to attune to something wondrous and complex and beautiful and wise... Then all sorts of capacities might come out that we d- didn't even know were possible. They could become common. We're not. This is not mere speculation, really. And the biggest issue there would come to making sure children spend time with people very much worthy of their attention. People worthy of the attention of all of us. People who know how to live virtuously, how to move, how to relate, how to listen to the land, and so on. You know, and this would all be part of a holistic. Culture, of course. This is a person who could only exist consistently in a larger ecology of the right kind. And those kind of people give us a whole body and mind education that gets passed from generation to generation on the basis of the level of wisdom, love, and beauty in the culture as a whole, as well as among the varied individuals. Now, that's not the norm in the dominant culture, where adults and children alike get barraged, by tweets from Elon Musk and diatribes from Tucker Carlson. Even if we like the politics of these people, that does not make them or what they say particularly skillful and wise. I think we've seen that pretty clearly. In general, we get overloaded by exposure to things that don't make us more susceptible to sacred inspiration and which may, in fact, make us resistant to wisdom, compassion, and grace. In the more ideal case, as children, we would spend time around true elders. And even our parents would at least have become stable and skillful adults with social, spiritual, and ecological skills sadly uncommon in the dominant culture. Now, when I say adults, remember we've mentioned before that there's a reasonable argument to be made that the dominant culture raises advancing juveniles, juveniles advancing in age, but who never reach adulthood, let alone become elders. But in a healthy culture, we would have exposure to not only adults, the adults would be adults almost universally, and then many of them might be elders. We would be exposed to people, and we would naturally observe what they do, how they move, how they relate, their way of being the quality of their presence. And we would observe all of this in natural settings, probably predominantly, maybe always, but at least predominantly in very naturalistic settings, where there would, we would find an organic richness and complexity that would offer us a great deal to attend to. When we go into nature, there's a lot going on. The mind's awake. Just compare the difference between a wild and domesticated being. You can see that there's a different kind of mind at work in the wild being. You know, comparing a wolf and a dog, it's, it's kind of no contest. Although there are some very bright dogs, no doubt about it. But they're going to have a hard time keeping up with the brightest of the wolves. You compare best and brightest, and you compare average and average. The average wolf is really something to tangle with. So there we would be, we would be observing all this richness as children, the richness of the natural world, the richness of elders, the richness of adults, and also our, our older brothers and sisters, our big brothers and sisters being on the path to maturation. and We observe all of that, and, and then we would begin to, it would become, first of all, a wellspring in our lives, that would deepen by means of our own continuous practice and experience. There would just be this fountain of wisdom, love, and beauty that we'd be able to draw from. And it would deepen, that, that well would be in our soul, and it would just go deeper and deeper. We want to surround our children with virtuous people who are very much worth observing, studying, listening to. And if we think of our own childhood and we think, you know what, maybe I lacked true elders. Maybe I never encountered people with a profound spiritual practice of life. And if that's true of us, if we can think that, then in one way or another we will have to grapple with that lack and try to educate ourselves, expose ourselves somehow to wisdom, love and beauty and practice maybe more intensely than people in other circumstances would have had to so that we can become proper elders for the children of our time and so that we can do a better job of working with the medicines of our world and also supporting others in their work with those medicines. Maybe it's a little unfair it be nice if we just grew up in this context. But it, it does mean for a lot of us that we're going to have to do maybe more work than we wish. But we can, we can link arms. We can be present with each other, support each other. So one way to put the most important thing for our work to find out the most important thing is to say that we need to find a lineage of people worth listening to people who were elders, sages. And it will help, too, if we can find living teachers in those traditions, or in a tradition, ideally. Try to focus on one, or two. And find living teachers who also themselves seem very much worth listening to, worth observing, being with. With a living teacher, we can study and observe with our whole body and mind how they move, how they relate, how they respond to challenges and also to goodnesses, to the boons and blessings. How do they respond to that? And how do they respond to the frustrations and even the tragedies? And it's a nice thing that we live in a time where traditions can talk to each other and share practices in a respectful way. And we can do that in a manner that avoids turning it all into a spiritual buffet in which we grab all the sweets. We can arrive at a holistic approach. And we're going to talk about at least a little bit of the spiritual superfood that actually tastes good too. The ego hates to admit this, but spiritual kale starts to taste like cake after we have a few bites. And meanwhile, the spiritual chocolate can start to rot our teeth. And the soul hungers for real teachings and real teachers. And when it doesn't find them, or when the ego feels intimidated in any way by those teachers or those teachings, then we will seek something else, something the ego approves of, or will manipulate the teachings. We can do that too. We'll, We'll be sticking it out. On the surface, it looks like we're still there, but we're... Picking and choosing what we're going to work with, manipulating and controlling the situation, and in any case, we'll rationalize it so well that it makes sense. We'll think that we're being sincere. And we face this problem everywhere in the dominant culture. The soul says one thing; the ego substitutes something that sort of sounds similar, and and, and allows it to say to the soul, "See, I did it. I did what you asked." So I often say the soul tells us to take the great leap into the unknown, and we go skydiving. The soul tells us to take the inward journey, and we hop on a plane. Now lately, we see this played out on such a massive and ignorant scale, because the soul asks us all to transcend our worldly concerns. And we decided the correct way to do that is in a rocket ship, or at least some of us decided that. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk probably hear the soul calling, calling us all to ascend, to expand our perspective, to enter into the spaciousness, the vastness of the great mystery. And they built rocket ships. It's a whole lot of effort to avoid the spiritual truths and the spiritual demands that frighten the ego and threaten the culture, the very culture that made them so wealthy. They're not going to threaten that. And so the soul asks us to seek teachings and to seek healing. And we get pulled into the self help catastrophe. We may get teachings that sound delightful to the ego, exciting to the ego, or experiences that the ego's eager to go into, but the ego's got a plan that thinks it knows how to control them. And by, and by and large, it will, as we've said before, especially with psychedelic medicines or any powerful medicine. The last ditch effort for the ego is just to blink out and say, oh, look, it was ego death. The ego didn't die. It just said, look, this is too much. I can't control it anymore. I'm out of here. And then it comes back and takes it over again. And in this fragmented approach, the healing we seek ends up largely as an extractive affair and we do become takers. We're not bad people, you know. It's not it. It's not so simple. It's that the world arises as magical living ecologies, interwoven ecologies. The world arises as a profound interwovenness. The dominant culture doesn't educate us to sense and skillfully participate in that profound interwovenness. So we trample it. And thus we break down ecologies. We don't see it usually. We don't see how our actions in one part of the vast world affect other parts. The parts are relative. There aren't really parts. Not ones that exist all by themselves. And we don't perceive the interwovenness sufficiently. Wisdom is skillful interwovenness. And a healthy culture would educate us for skillful interwovenness. This whole appreciation of education relates to our need to get oriented in a holistic philosophy of life. We have to learn this holism. And again, in a healthy culture, we'd encounter adults, elders, and sages who move from and toward wholeness, from and toward sacredness. And from an early age, everything would orient us to that. Since nature and culture wouldn't get separated in such a community, we would learn how to learn directly from nature. We would live with wildness and a participatory engagement with life. We would experience the mutuality of nature. And that would mean the mutual illumination, mutual nourishment, mutual liberation so essential to our being. And since most of us didn't grow up with that kind of culture, we benefit from rigorous study. And in any case, we can only have a healthy culture on the basis of a healthy philosophy of life. Now, a holistic philosophy of life has to address the structure of all our experience. And in our next contemplation, we're going to look at how that relates to what we can refer to as the ethics of consciousness, and how that in turn relates to working with the medicines of our world. Now, a very quick summary of our philosophical guide to working with the medicines of our world so far. First, we can make this a true renaissance. We can become reborn in wisdom, love, and beauty, but only if we realize that we've been here before and missed the opportunity. I mean, that's metaphorically put, that we don't have to have literally that realization, but we do have to have some recognition that there's maybe things we don't know that people have wrestled with before. Now, secondly, even the dominant culture has wisdom traditions that can help us today, help us work with the medicines of our world, empower us. We considered Plato in particular is offering a path of initiation into the mysteries of life in a way that faces up to the challenges of spiritual materialism. If we don't take care, spiritual materialism will limit all the medicines we have and we will miss a crucial opportunity to help heal ourselves, each other, and our world at the same time. And there's a lot riding on it at this point. Third, because of our degraded context, we need to seek initiation into a holistic philosophy of life. The dominant culture traded away wisdom, including holism, and we exchanged it for the fragmentation we see today. If we begin to deeply value education again, while more deeply valuing ourselves, each other, and our world, then we can awaken the passion. pursue demanding forms of education and practice that may frighten the ego and threaten the dominant culture but which will ultimately leave us feeling joyful, peaceful healed and in attunement with sacredness and wonder walking a path of wisdom love and beauty If you have questions, reflections or stories to share about the medicines of our world and your experience with them stories about holism, stories about the mysteries and initiation into mysteries, anything related to the things that we've been discussing in these contemplations, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of your reflections into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of it.